0: Have you ever dreamt of building an app that impacts the daily lives of hundreds of thousands of people? Well, now it's your chance with Monday.com. Monday.com is a teamwork platform. It is really beautifully designed to manage pretty much any team, organization or process online. It is super easy to use and I must say very, very flexible. Monday.com just launched a contest to develop apps for the 100,000 teams that use it for their daily work. The Monday Apps Challenge is bringing developers around the world together to compete in order to build apps that can improve the way teams work together on the platform. And whether it's to help marketing, construction, sales, software developers, or anything in between, they are looking for out-of-the-box apps to include and definitely feature in their apps marketplace. And of course, there's something to win. Yes, because the prices are insane. Check it out at monday.com slash data science. That's monday.com slash data science. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in Belgium. I'm uh, very glad to have you here on the show. And of course, feel free to jump on our official Discord channel. Uh, you will find the link in the show notes of this episode at datascienceatome.com. We also have another channel on uh, twitch.tv slash coding gossip with one G. That's a place where I usually do some live coding sessions and uh, of course, some uh, podcast previews. So usually you find me speaking there on episodes that still have to be published on the traditional channels on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and whatever client you uh, are most comfortable with. Now, let's go back to the show. Uh, Well, in this episode, I would like to speak about a very interesting approach that uh, lives in the realm of unsupervised or semi-supervised methods which is extremely interesting. And uh, I want to be honest here, I made such a uh, wrong speculation back in 2017, when I claimed that unsupervised methods will actually kind of disappear. I don't actually recall if I said that word, disappear completely, but definitely I thought back in in that time, that unsupervised approaches would have been much less used or much less interested with respect to the uh, supervised approaches due to the fact that and that was my uh, speculation at the time, uh, due to the fact that data are much easier to annotate and also much cheaper to annotate. And so back in 2017, I uh, thought, okay, well, if this is the trend if labeling data is much easier or it's getting it's getting easier and easier and also cheaper and cheaper well then i predict that um in the future we will have many more labeled data for which uh, you know on which we can use supervised methods that actually perform better usually it's much easier and you reach better performance and better accuracy with supervised methods rather than their unsupervised or semi supervised equivalent. Now, after three years, I have to say that I was wrong. (laughs) Because uh, yes, it's true that annotating data is becoming cheaper it's becoming easier. There are many more automatic tools today than even three years ago. But it's also true that the volume of data is increasing at an exponential uh, pace. And that means that even if labeling and annotating data is becoming cheaper and uh, and, uh, easier, the volume of data is not making it as easy as we expected. And so, uh, you know, there is that other uh, phenomenon that is happening that I definitely overlooked back in 2017, which is uh, data volumes. Now, with this said, uh, there is a method in uh, the field of computer vision um, that is extremely interesting um, because it allows you to reach state of the art with a hundred times less annotations, and uh, and so that's why it's interesting because you know you can um, uh, you can you can reach the same accuracy with much less uh, human intervention. Now, unfortunately, this method is applied to images, uh, but I'm pretty sure that with some uh, customization, this approach uh, can definitely be applied to other uh, data, data types. Uh, and of course, uh, numeric data types, not only images, but also uh, audio, videos, and uh, definitely numeric data types as well. So also tables and you know, these Excel sheets that are the equivalent in CSV or HDF, or whatever uh, format that represents that particular spreadsheet you have at hand. The topic of the day is uh, CLR, which stands for contrastive learning. It's a very interesting approach. And I hope you stay with me, because this is when we learn stuff. Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. So why did I choose this uh, topic today? It's because I read a paper that um, goes under the title of uh, CLR. Um, that improves upon the previous state of the art uh, self-supervised learning. And not only that, it also beats the supervised learning method on ImageNet classification tasks. Now, ImageNet, you have to know that's a benchmark that researchers are using to assess the accuracy and the performance of several neural networks and algorithms in computer vision. Um, And currently, I think it's like 70 something percent. Of course you can google that the literature is really full of uh, these uh, architectures that are performing on image net classification essentially the problem in these um in these tasks is matching the correct object to um you know from a corpus of of images so basically finding similar objects by contrastive learning what does it mean contrastive learning well contrastive learning means teaching a machine how to distinguish between Uh, similar and dissimilar objects essentially and so think about one of these uh, games that you probably have played when you were a kid Uh, find the cat or find the dog or find the chair or find the table These were in fact uh, contrastive learning tasks because you didn't really have you know a description of the objects that you wanted to find the most similar item to, but you just had something to watch and then you had to go into a um, a cognitive process that allowed you to find the most similar thing to the thing that you had uh, in your hands. And I say think because indeed it can be applied to animals, to objects, to generic items. Uh, you know, similarity is a concept that goes beyond the domain that you are interested in. And so it goes beyond uh, and it embraces a number of, uh, of uh, categories that you can apply uh, the concept of similarity to. Now, to do this, uh, you know, with, as a human being, that's relatively easy. A kid can do that without having any detailed description of what a cat actually is or what a dog actually is. But a kid can already distinguish what a cat from the dog, um, you know, even though the dog and the cat both have four legs, two ears, two eyes, and many other commonalities, right? If you want to ask a machine to do this, <laughs> that's that's where the problem is, because In fact, you know, we need to break down this problem. That's not really easy for a machine, for an algorithm. And so we need to do essentially three things. The first is that we need examples of similar and dissimilar items, right? Because we need to uh, teach the algorithm to uh, distinguish what is similar and what is dissimilar. So we need to feed the model with something that we already know is similar or dissimilar. The second thing we need is the ability to know uh, what a particular image represents, right? And so those, you know, features that characterize that particular image and uh, are not not representing another image that in fact is not similar. And the third thing is the ability to quantify if two items are in fact similar. So we need a, a metric, we need a similarity measure. So these are the three things that an algorithm needs. And uh, uh, so how do we proceed? You know, because we have these things, (laughs) like after all these years of deep learning and also fancy algebraic methods, we have these things. We have these tools. And so if we combine them somehow, uh, we can uh, solve the task of measuring the similarity. And not only that, finding the most similar item to the one that to the query item, the so-called query item, which is the item I want to find the most similar item to. So what is the framework of uh, uh, SimCLR uh, about? Well, it's a framework that is relatively complex when you look at the architecture. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have the chance to show anything on a podcast. So I will try to describe how the framework looks like and what are the steps that you need to take in order to Uh, train a machine learning model and train a network to find the most similar item by contrastive learning. So the first thing that you need to do is take an image and uh, transform this image um, with random transformations. So what these random transformations can be, in fact, flipping an image or cropping the image or exchanging colors uh, you know, all these affine transformations that you can apply with the, the most trivial uh, image viewer uh, that or image software that you can download from pretty much anything, you, you know, you remember Microsoft Paint was very limited. Now imagine you you pass this, this original image into Microsoft Paint, where you don't really have a lot of, uh, you know, actions and transformations that you can apply, but you can just crop the image, you can flip the image, you can rotate it, you can Invert the colors. And essentially, what you are doing, you are applying a transformation, and essentially you are creating images that are similar because they are transformed in an affine way. So once this transformation is applied, um, what you need to do is getting a pair of two augmented images, let's call them x1 and x2, and each image in that pair is in fact similar to each other, right? Because they come from the same original image. Now, these two images, each of them, are passed, uh, is passed through an encoder to get the representation, so-called features, that characterize that particular image and not another. So, what is an encoder? Encoder, we have covered this a number of times in uh, our podcast. An encoder is essentially a way to project an object, a uh, an input, let's call it like that, uh, into another dimensional space, the dimensions of which are defined by the encoder, and we have seen this in, uh, uh, you know, encoder decoder. So the GANs, we have seen this uh, in uh, um, adversarial networks. We have seen this many many times. So what the encoder does to the image is essentially converting that image into a vector. Right? And the dimensions, of course, of these vectors are defined by the characteristics and the architecture of the encoder. You might be using whatever encoder you want, but essentially what you would like to do, especially when you're dealing with computer vision tasks, probably you want to choose a, a convolutional encoder, right? So what the encoder does, it takes the image and it returns a um, an hidden representation or a vectorial representation, a vectorized image of certain dimensions. We will call these uh, vectors h1 and h2, because remember, we are passing the two images, the original one and the transformed one into the encoder in order to get the vector representation. So, that's the first step. Now, what happens is what we want to measure is the similarity between two vectors, right? We want to calculate the similarity between two images, but images in the, uh, you know, in the pixel space, it's going to be much harder to uh, find the similarities and to measure them. So, how can we do that? Uh, Well, we can do that on the vectors, because if we have a very good vector, vectorial representation of the image, well, then we have a very special trick in mathematics that allows you to calculate the similarity between two vectors. And that's the so called cosine similarity. It's something that is very old, very mature topic here, now rocket science, but it's extremely effective because it allows you to take two vectors, let's call Z1 and Z2, and simply, uh, sorry, H1 and H2, and simply calculate the similarity be- between these two vectors. So the cosine similarity is very interesting. It's a very interesting metric because uh, it goes between 0 and 1, meaning that a cosine value of 0 means that the two vectors are at 90 degrees to each other, so they are so-called orthogonal to each other, and they have absolutely no match. So think about the image between um, you know, a cat, the, the vector representation of a cat and the vector representation of a, of a chair, right? These two vectors should be orthogonal. Uh, and this means that the cosine between the two vectors is going to be zero or approximately zero. If, however, the two vectors are uh, a match, like a cat and uh, it's a similar representation, or it's a, a cropped version, or it's a, um, inverted color equivalent, well, then the two vectors should be um, should match on, on several dimensions. And this means that the, uh, the closer the cosine value is to 1, uh, the smaller the angle uh, between the two vectors is, and the greater the match between the two vectors. That's how cosine similarity works. Now, what happens when you apply this pairwise cosine similarity between each um, uh, transformed image? Remember that we transformed images by a fine transformation. So what happens when we apply the pairwise cosine similarity? Well, we will have uh, a score for each pair of, uh, of images. And so this means that uh, very similar images, and usually these are the images that have been transformed by the same transformation. So like the cat and the cropped cat, the cat and the inverted color cat, the cat and the rotated cat, all these pairs will have cosine similarity that is approximately one or very close to one. While a cat with an elephant and a cat with a chair will have cosine similarity that's very low, approximately zero. So that's the rationale behind. So once you have all these uh, images, in fact, you build a matrix, a similarity matrix, that is um, the number of images squared that reports all the similarities among all possible pairs, all possible combinations of images. Now, there is another trick that we need to do in order to uh, you know close the loop on this, which is taking each pair of images, so imagine the cat and the transformed cat, the chair and the transformed chair. So we take each pair and we apply a softmax function to get a probability measure of these two images being similar right and that's another mathematical trick that we know very well from from algebra so you take the similarity between two images okay by the by the cosine similarity and we divide that by the sum of the similarity of the the one image 1 to all the other images in the batch now what happens is that if that image is not similar to any other image in the batch it means that in the denominator we will find uh, similarities that are very close to zero and their sum will also very close to zero will be also very close to zero this means that the denominator is going to be a very small number while the numerator on top of that ratio you will find the similarity of the image um, that you have at hand and if that similarity is high it means that on the numerator you will have a large number, well, maximum one. Now, one divided by a, a number that is approximately zero is a very large number. And if you pass that large number into a softmax, you will have a, almost one or close to one. And that's the probability, because when you pass numbers through a softmax, you get numbers between zero and one. And this means that the probability of the images in the numerator is very high. Right? And this is done basically by comparing the similarity of the, of the query images to all the others, right? So that gives you a probability value, right? The probability of these two images being similar. Now, this is exactly what you uh, in fact want to have because these probabilities what you need to eliminate the manual intervention from this entire process. You can do that by setting a cutoff on that probability and let the machine choose or pick the best images or the most similar images just by looking at the the other images in the batch. This is extremely effective because now that you have these vectors and you have a way to uh, calculate the similarities between two vectors, what you will do is essentially maximizing the similarity. And that's where the training happens. So the training is basically minimizing a loss function that is, in fact, maximizing the similarity. And that training will essentially tune the, uh, the encoder, right? Because that is all part of the same architecture. And so with backpropagation, by observing the maximum similarity in an unsupervised fashion, because we have this probability measure that allows us to decide if two things are similar or not, we can backpropagate that back to the encoder and train the encoders to encode similar images with similar vectors, which is exactly what we want. We want an encoder that is consistent with the concept, with our concept of similarity, that is when we see two images in the real world that are in fact similar, we want that encoder to encode both the images with similar vectors, right? That's where the consistency is. Now, when this happens, when this happens, the job is done to start with because once we train these encoders, we can throw away all the rest of the architecture and all the, you know, the loss functions and all the other things that we have used to train from these batches of images. And the only thing that we are interested in is the encoder itself. Why? Because we want to perform so-called downstream tasks. So, you know, we have seen this many times um, in uh, even in uh, NLP or in the GPT model, for example. Uh, In the GPT model, you are predicting the next word given a context of words, right? Now, is that task interesting? Not at all right? It's, uh, it's it's not really the purpose of the GPT model. The purpose of that training mm, approach is to tweak and tune the weights, the weight matrices, the matrices of weights of the GPT model, right? That's the only purpose. That's only why, that's why we, we uh, scan a, a huge text and we try to predict the next word given, let's say, 20 words or in fact, many more. But the task that we're really interested is, is going home with an encoder is going home with a model that can in fact do much more than predicting the next word. And so in the, in a similar fashion, in a similar way, we are interested in what is called the downstream tasks. So once we have these trained encoders that are consistent with the concept of similarity, Well, then we can use these encoders for image image classification tasks, because we know that if the encoder works and it has been trained, well, it means that when I plug two new images and I encode them with my amazing trained encoder, I will get a vector representation of these images that makes sense from a similarity perspective. And that's exactly how I perform, for example, an image classification task. Because I will look at the the encoded version of the images rather than to the images itself and decide if the two images, for example, should be clustered in the same group or not. Or I can also measure how far these two images are from each other just by looking at how the encoder encoded them. Now with this trick, the researchers behind this amazing paper that I will uh, of course report the link in the show notes of this episode on datascienceatom.com, they made some experiments and guess what? They improved the state of the art of a self-supervised method, contrastive predictive coding, and uh, they also, by 7%, by 7% improvement, which is incredible in machine learning, And also, they got on par accuracy with uh, a supervised ResNet 50, which is a very well-known architecture in image uh, classification tasks, on par of that. So, equivalent accuracy to ResNet 50, which is incredible because they could do that with less annotations, uh, about 100 times less annotations than the supervised uh, equivalent. So the take home message here is that yes, it is possible to reach state of the art in computer vision without annotating too much with hundred times fewer labels. That's incredible. I think this paper is also interesting because there is a GitHub repo uh, where you can also look at the code, how it works. You can try it yourself. Uh, you can even change a uh, domain and use it on other images. It would be nice, for example, to see these things applied to medical images or any other uh, data types out there. So contrastive learning is an extremely interesting approach. It also confirms that in 2017, I was wrong in my prediction. And uh, I'm uh, very happy to share when I'm wrong. Uh, It's very important that we always shine more light on on these approaches. And uh, definitely the trend that I'm seeing in these last few years is that uh, we are not longer interested in accuracy alone, but we are also interested in performance, where performance means how many images do I need or how many, how big is my training set with respect to the past? How many annotations should I uh, perform to reach the same accuracy of that other method that needed 100% annotation, annotated images or annotated inputs? So, you know, there is a form of optimization, not just in the accuracy of the prediction, but also in what you need to reach that accuracy. And that, I believe, is our next challenge in machine learning and artificial intelligence methods. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, uh, come visit us on our Discord channel. It's uh, where we speak about many uh, topics. You can also propose new topics, those that you want me to speak about in the near future. Also, uh, don't forget our live streaming channel uh, on uh, twitch.tv codinggossip with one G. That's really it for today. Thanks for tuning in and talk to you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.